A reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only one. Come into the reading room, all you lovers of language and literature. This is the place for those of us who believe that reading is essential as we seek to rise above the ordinary. And the reading room contains a host of extraordinary people, leading lights of the written word. Authors, literary critics, columnists and ideas people will tantalize your minds with their wordplay while discussing the ideas and worldviews that form our wonderful literary milieu. Come step into a world of magic, the place of undiscovered treasures, a room of reading. And a very warm welcome to the latest edition of The Reading Room. Now, I say a warm welcome, although I think that for many people in South Africa at this time of the year, except if you're on the low felt or down near Durban or something like that, it's getting pretty chilly because we are now in May in South Africa, which means that we are in that long, slow descent into the winter months, which becomes quite difficult for a lot of people um, when it comes to keeping warm. But um, we always say, well, get into the kitchen. And that's what today's chat is all about, is being in the kitchen and people who spend their time in kitchens. Now, one of the things that um, I've particularly am fond of is being sustainable and we've spoken to people about how they have created sustainable spaces whether it be in their gardens whether it be in the things that they do with their businesses and of course one of the big things now not just here in South Africa but overseas is sustainability when it comes to food and I think the fact that so many people around the world do not have food security has become something which is really on people's minds and playing on their minds the amount of wastage there is out there how does one become more green when it comes to being in your kitchen how do you apart from the big fad of course and I don't say a fad because I think a lot of people are still doing it how do you become more self-sustaining and how do you do it without doing just a vegetable garden in your backyard which of course during COVID we all kind of started growing our own food I think that people had a lot more time to think about it one of the chefs has really taken this to heart and has brought out a couple of books on it as well is a foraging chef now one of my favourite programmes that I used to watch on uh, BBC was Hugh Fernley Whittingstall who I think is one of the first people I ever saw actually going around and eating stuff from the ground now it's not something that is strange to a lot of people who grew up in England because of course going strumping, which is a word I still use, if there's something hanging over somebody's fence, trust me I'm going to be picking it and eating it but <laughs> foraging has become a big thing around the world and I think that it is also something that should be more on the ground, shall we say, when it comes to getting other people learning how to create food for themselves from sources that they don't know about and this particular foraging chef has really gone into the background of what did people eat before Europeans came here and brought all of their food with them to find out stuff that was there to be eaten by the tribes, the Sun, the Khoisan, all the other tribes that lived in the South of Africa. So to tell us a little bit more about this, and I will stop my, my long ambling intro to him, Gregory Henderson, the foraging chef, thank you for joining me on The Reading Room today. Thank you, Melanie, for having me today and to talk about something that's very passionate uh, that I'm about. And, um, you know, obviously a transition, what we're trying to drive within South Africa to provide people with a more nutritional food system. 
and it's available. But thank you. So where did your journey start? I mean, where did your, your thing, not just about sustainability, but the whole thing with food, where did that all start? Well, I'm a, a young boy who grew up in the Eastern Cape and, you know, we spent a lot of the time outdoors with different types of communities, playing in the Amatola Mountains, and we were exposed to wild foods at a very young age. And one of my earliest experiences was going down a hill on a skateboard and hitting a pup from a Hopelium caffron, which is a sal plant. And when I looked up, I saw the tree. And when we started eating the berries off the tree, and they were very nutritional, very delicious. And from them as well, which inspired me to start taking a journey with into food. Uh, one of my first jobs, I was actually a pot wash in a small little uh, restaurant in King Williamstown called Guido's. And I worked there for about four months, cleaning pots and all of that. And eventually, I got the opportunity to pick up a pan and start cooking. And that's where my love fell into with regards to food and to cooking. And later in that, I went and I studied at the Royal Hotel in Durban. I did a three-year in-service training program. And then my career took off from there. My first job actually was in the bush, Shizitsi Ngubani, which is in the Valkofondon. And one of the things I wanted to start putting onto the foods is African food, traditional South African food. And touching bases with all the rangers that worked there, the local people that lived in those communities, that opened my eyes to a bigger food system out there. And from that, it just took off. Okay, so, I mean, this, this is one thing that people sit there, and I think because of speckworm becoming like one of those things, it's a, com, a carbon sequestrator, that it's very good, and speckies went all over the world, but they're really good to eat as well. I mean, I, I can't walk past one of the plants without picking off some of the leaves. They do have different tastes, though, so you have to get the right one. Yes. And I know a lot of chefs have been using it in the upmarket um, restaurants around town, but how would you get people who want to be more involved in this, not just people that live in the bush and have that innate um, knowledge of what they can and can't eat, but people who live in the urban environments. I mean, how much can we go foraging in, in the urban sort of spaces? So one other lovely thing is that the biggest biodiversity lies within urban spaces. I remember when people moved into those areas, they were already wild. So we have a large collection of indigenous foods and wild foods that grow there. Also, when the settlers came, they introduced a lot of those crops and a lot of those trees that obviously are non-native, but also edible. So by looking at your neighbor's garden, as like you said before, if something's growing over the tree, you would grab it. You know, we have an availability within urban spaces. It's also about, you know, people also understanding what is around them. People are very easy and quick to run to a supermarket to buy something instead of looking within their own plot, within their own home. And by re-establishing biodiversity within Southern Africa, we need to propagate the right species back into our gardens that are edible because it forms part of a very nutritional food system, but it's also a regenerative process. Furthermore, it gives education onto the youth, and that is our future. We need to start educating our youth on these indigenous foods so they can start obviously utilizing them in a more contemporary, more innovative way, but also to regenerate South Africa through those processes. Okay, so how does this actually all buy into the slow food movement? I mean, I, I know a lot of people who work within the slow food movement and basically, you know, the, the shortest journey from fork to fork, essentially. Are people picking up on that here in South Africa or are we still all too quick to go and run into the, late, uh, the nearest supermarket and buy something which has been imported from, you know, somewhere in Europe? See, slow food has changed somewhat over the past, say, 10, 15 years in terms of their approach. You know, internationally, they've become more activists. They are looking at collaborating more with organizations to promote this. It's basically a great platform for people to start understanding the processes of biodiversity, regenerative farming, agroecological, by creating that network where people can start collaborating to promote this further on a global network as well. A lot of my work has been put onto the arc of taste, and that's basically a platform where you start 
highlighting all the foods and the forgotten crops within Southern Africa. And it's one of many platforms around South Africa. However, you know, obviously as activists, activists will always have different opinions on things. And there's certain crops that are promoted that some of us have different opinions on to versus other crops where they believe are basically established biodiversity. And we're trying to get a better knowledge base on that. And just to give an example, you know, we started looking at a certain crop, for instance, like maize. And um, what does maize represent within Southern Africa? And it's got a very, very sad story to it. And when we started looking and talking to the communities based on their personal health, because their main diet is based on maize, we started seeing a lot of things being highlighted, such as diabetics, swollen ankles, overweight, and all of that because it was their main food source. Then we started looking at the communities within the Sutu, whose diet is basically primarily based on soja. They were healthy. They had none of these problems as well. So I believe everything has to be done within a balance, but also the crops that we're planting need to inspire biodiversity. Currently, where I live as well, we've got a good collection of obviously wheat and then canola that they plant, and these are very degenerative crops, so they're pulling everything from the soil. So there's a better way we can start farming these applications and farming these crops by creating an intercrop planting of different variety of different species to create a more regenerative environment, but create more biodiversity. If we start losing all those little insects and nematodes, the microbes, all of those things, we don't have biodiversity anymore. We don't inspire a regenerative application. The problem with that is as well, if I take myself personally in terms of my own health, I suffer from celiac, and it's not because of the, the, the crop itself. It's what's been sprayed onto that crop. So all the wheat has been sprayed with glyphosate at the moment, which increases the gluten content with that. And now when you're making bread, you're developing that dough, and it's, it's, it's developing that gluten even more. Our bodies can't process that anymore. We're not used to it at all. So by teaching people about more nutritional foods, by also looking outside of agricultural sectors into more wild and indigenous foods in the wild, we can start creating establishing a, a more nutritional food system, but also benefit the health of our communities. The biggest thing that inspires crime within Southern Africa is hunger. If we can attack that, we can start changing our communities, but building a resilience within our communities to a more healthier diet. Taking something like also like maize as well, there's a lot of talk about it, there's a lot of it about being a heritage crop. And yes, it is become a heritage crop, but it's been done through as what we need to understand as heritage, as transmission of tribes from the West all the way through, which was introduced from South America. The problem with that at the moment is one of the, the most degenerative crops, and it pulls absolutely everything out of the soil. Now, we have to work that soil even harder in order to plant that next crop. So what we're trying to teach people, yes, keep that within your diet, but have that balance within your diet where you can start intercrop planting things, where you have your nitrogen fixation crops like your amaranth and all of those, which form part of their diet as well for Morogo. And all of these things, working together, create a more healthier diet and more diverse diet for them so they're not just based on one type of crop. So biodiversity needs to be re-established. Landscapes, regeneration needs to be done. And the only way that we can do that effectively is through the use of indigenous foods. The reason I say indigenous foods, indigenous foods don't require much amendments. So they grow within a natural formed ecosystem but they're also prolific and they produce an abundance of fruits and, and vegetables as well. I'm going to take one plant for example, as we take a marula tree. A marula tree produces between 700 and 900 kgs of fruit. Only 25% of that fruit is consumed by the fauna. Now, you've got a lot of biomass down there. So what are the communities are doing at the moment? They're utilizing that biomass as falling onto the floors and creating things like marula jams, marula jellies, but then also later taking that nut 
and cracking that nut to get a marula nut, which is absolutely delicious. And these are the things that we've got to start looking at. How can we take this biomass and this excess fruit that's not been consumed by the fauna, you know, and put them into our own diets, put them into a more regenerative agriculture system? Because within the nine biomes of South Africa, there's a diverse food system. There's nine different regions, nine biomes, nine different food systems, and a culture that's allocated to all of those as well. We have a collection of probably 3,700 ingredients that we have forgotten about. And it's food that should be put into our supermarkets so that we can start re-establishing the true flavors of South Africa, not one based on colonialism and settlers coming to our shores, but one that was there before, before that time, that everyone has now forgotten about. But it is strange. I mean, I'll go wandering around, especially when it's mulberry season, and I know that mulberries are invaders, but quite frankly, I think that any food trees should be kept. And I'm one of the very few people I see actually scrumping mulberries wherever I go. I go and find the best <laughs> mulberry trees. And I sit there and I see the amount of waste. And I'm thinking, why don't people put nets under here? I mean, go and take these to the places. You can make mulberry jam from it. You can eat it. I mean, it's really, really healthy. It's full of good vitamins. And, but people look at me like I'm completely nuts because I'm like standing on top of my car to get to those very tasty fruits. Yeah. And, and yes, that is not actually an indigenous plant. So what plants are there? I and mean, you said I know there's a lot of them. What did people eat before maize came along, before wheat came along, before tomatoes? I mean, I often wonder what an earth, Italian cuisine was like before, you know, the, the, the new world came and plonked yes. all the tomatoes and garlic and all of that stuff down. What did people eat and what are people still in some areas eating that you don't have to bring in from overseas? So one special thing about South Africa is that we have two rainfall regions. We have a summer rainfall region and a winter rainfall region. In the different times of the years, you know, there's a different abundance of food. So here in the south, predominantly the mountains were found where all the medicine was. In the forest, there was a lot of mushrooms that were consumed and a lot of geophytes, roots and tubers and a lot of uh, tree, foot, uh, tree berries as well. When you go further up north into the low fell to the greater Kruger region as well, which is the summer rainfall region, you've got a high abundance of tree fruit. But not only that, to the different types of edible roots that the plants would have, but also to the greens that used to grow there. And through time and through generations, there's an indigenous knowledge system on, on know-how, how they used to work these products as well. And in terms of even groundnuts as well, we talk about a bambara nut. That has so many different types of uses and that we can be doing. And I've actually got a couple of ingredients here. So this is what we call is a monkey orange. So... This monkey orange comes from Ripskop, which is just outside Hoodsprite. And I spent a lot of time up there because it's got a very beautiful community that holds a great abundance of indigenous knowledge. But this fruit within itself can solve food serenity within that area because why? It's got a, a fruit that's very high in vitamin C. It's got a nut that's very high in protein and fiber that you can use. But also we've got to be careful because this is where the indigenous knowledge comes to play. There's three different types of species that grow there. We've got a mm -hmm. black monkey orange. We've got a corky monkey orange. All right, and then we've all got the the. Geez, I forgot the last name of that, but there are three different types of species, and two of the species have a very poisonous nut which contains strychnine, but the other one has an edible nut. So by us being able to identify these plants correctly, so it's the spiny monkey orange. That's the last one. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and because of the hot nutritional content of the fruit, the fruit is absolutely delicious. So you can take it into a pulp, make a beautiful drink. And especially with the corky monkey orange, which has an edible nut, you can dry that nut and you can use that nut as basically a snack for the kids, but also can be pounded and make into a porridge. But it's also very highly nutritional. The one thing I love about wild foods and indigenous foods of South Africa, they're highly nutritional. We don't have to eat a lot. 
So the problem with South Africa at the moment, because of the foods that we are eating, we are consuming more than we're supposed to be because we're not getting nutritional intake from the foods that we're mm. currently buying from our supermarkets. If you eat a tomato you buy from the supermarket versus the tomato you grow at home, you can taste the difference, but your consumption is less. The more we eat, the more biomass we have to deal with. So once we start eating more nutritional foods that basically fill those nutrition benefits that we need within our body, we can start changing our own diets, becoming to a more pure food form, but a more regenerative society in terms of the food that we eat. Okay, so you've actually brought out quite a few books on this now. So tell me about I your did. books. And this is where the whole preamble has been obviously <laughs> coming up to. Is that, I mean, I became aware of you not because, I mean, I'm not a foodie per se. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things I appreciate good food, but it's not... For me, the be-all and end-all, to be honest, and, but I do appreciate it, and especially this one really caught my attention because of the fact that it's, it buys into the things which I go out and preach. So tell me a bit more about the books, the first book that you brought out and going on from there. Fantastic. So the first book that I brought out was called The Other Big Tapestry, and it was a book that I wrote about a restaurant that I used to run within just outside of Manus in Botrofia called uh, Forage. And the restaurant within itself won most global sustainable dining experience globally by Lux UK and also won Best Head Chef. But it was a journey that I went on through the staff that worked with me from Botrofia that helped me curate this menu, that inspired me to do this menu, but also inspired me to do this book. Now, within Botrofia, it was a great transversion zone of colonialism where they came in and a lot of indigenous foods were removed and planted with colonial crops. This book basically talks about the history and the journeys and the lessons of William Barnard, I mean, William Birchall, Lady Anne Barnard, and also the indigenous people that were within the area, but also the bartering that happened. And what we did is through the knowledge that I got from the youngsters living in there, for instance, like the, the sour fig, there was a dish that they used to do is take the sap and they used to take the sap out of the sour fig and put it into a can with a little bit of spit or a bit of water and they used to whip it up into like a meringue and they called it a polyvitskun. So that had to feature on my menu with that story behind it. It was a Hopefully not the of the spit, same. though. Oh, definitely <laughs> not. No ways. Yeah, but you know, we, we utilized that ingredient and transformed that story. And because they were the storytellers on the floor, the waitresses used to curate that story back to the guests and the chefs were cooking that as well. When the guests arrived into the restaurant as well, we did a smudging experience where we took wild sage that was growing there. And... They taught me how their ancestors used to make a tray where they used to take a palomon shell, they used to take the acacia trees and they used to link the branches together to make a tray. And they showed me how they used to bundle that sage and obviously to bless it. The reason that we did it, we wanted good karma or good, good omens within the room when people came to dine. And then also when they, uh, basically when they burnt it, it created that sensory experience within that dining experience. So everyone went through a curated experience. We drew a lot of the inspiration from what was growing around us on a seasonal approach, but we also focuses on non-native ingredients that we introduced, like different types of allium species, uh, grass nuts, um, felt fetch, which was introduced into obviously the agriculture area at that time. It was a beautiful story. And, you know, it all goes back to the lessons that I learned about that region, the indigenous foods, the culture, it was very, very important to me that I had to curate this into a dining experience. The second book that I wrote was about a very, very unique area. And obviously within the Cape Floristic region, we sit with about close over 9,000 different species and a lot of them endemic and you cannot find them anywhere else in the world. But people didn't understand and didn't know about these plants, didn't know what was edible. And the indigenous knowledge system 
was starting to be lost in this. And I felt that I needed to take this information and put it into a book. And this is what I called the Strandfelt. So it is the Strandfelt of the Southern Cape, and it's over a specific region called the Overberg Dune Strandfelt, where there's a collection of history, a collection of very unique and rare ingredients that you find there. But people cannot start propagating within the garden if they don't know. So the book is there to inspire people to start regenerating and propagating these species within their own gardens within that specific region. Because the Cape Floristic region is very, very sensitive and it has different types of felt types and soil types as well, it's so important that we can now preserve those different types of genetics so we can put them into the right species, into the right placements as well. So that's creating biodiversity in the right way, but also establishing a more prolific food system because a lot of the problem with the indigenous people, especially the Amakwai, which is the Strandlopers that live along the coastline, they don't have that right to food sovereignty anymore. And if they are caught picking within a claphoristic region, they get arrested. But it's their heritage, it's their culture. So we need to start looking at different ways how we can start working with communities and organizations like Cape Nature and San B that within their protected spaces, how can we get food and medicine for those indigenous communities by reestablishing something that they should be able to access, but in a responsible way. So this gives people an opportunity to start understanding, right, these are the products, this is what they were used for, now we can understand it better. We can help them and give also respect back to their culture because they are First Nation people. The problem in South Africa at the moment that First Nation people in Southern Africa are losing their recognition. We just had a new banknote that was just released now. It used to have that beautiful picture of that Bushman. It's changed. It's not there anymore. Hmm. So it's an ancient, ancient, ancient lineage, but it's an ancient food system that we are losing and the guys are poaching in the mountains at the moment because they don't have access to it. So we need to somehow work with them to create that access for them. The same as the Palamon as well. They have the right to the sovereignty of that ingredient because it's part of the ancestral um, lineage. And at the moment, the guys are poaching because they need that income because they are hungry. All the fishing quotas and all of those things have been given to other organizations, especially to the local communities. We need to somehow turn that around. You know, we should be mm. benefiting our communities first before we actually start branching out to export markets. That way we'll transform our communities. As like I said before, you know, our communities are doing these things and getting involved in crime because they are hungry. And if we can start changing the mindset on this and start having a more collaborative approach, working more closely with indigenous communities, their their indigenous knowledge system comes from a very, very ancient place and it gives us good lessons in life. There's a saying that they say, it's called Hanua. And Hanua is basically a very ancient word where it's the process where man is living with nature to regenerate nature, to be the custodian of nature. And that is something they've always done. Every person I've met around Southern Africa through my travels Everything they have taught me is that when you take something out, you need to put something back. It is not enough to take uh, take out. You've got to establish it first. You need to grow it first before you can take from that as well. And he said, you might go through a point of hunger, but that is part of the greatest hunger that we are faced with to make sure that we have enough food for the future. Okay, so you know, you're educating people on the ways of foraging and what you can live off the land with, okay, in your books. So you, but you also run courses. I mean, but that's obviously to teach people how to forage. Do you get them into the whole thing of how to work with other communities as well about the education of going forward themselves and educating people further? Absolutely. So that's why I work with two organizations that are very important. One is called Sociotech, and Sociotech basically engage with the communities to try and establish that food system. 
Harvesting Heritage then comes in with those communities to try and help them to take that product from the, the community into the market, but also to educate chefs. Um, currently, we're actually running a competition at the moment where we have taken chefs all around from Johannesburg, and we've taken up to a small community in the north in Straitskral, where we have a community that's growing some very old and indigenous foods that the chefs have now purchased from them. And some of those products, as we look at this, is what we call the marula nuts. So as I spoke about earlier, this is basically a product that we don't even have in our market anymore. And we mm. need to inspire us to start putting this within our market so people can start utilizing it. So on the 27th of May at Brooklyn Bridge, we've got 10 of top Africa's top chefs from Johannesburg. They're all going to be competing. And the brief is to utilize indigenous ingredients, but also to touch back into their heritage, back into their culture, so they can talk about it and promote it better. Is this going to be televised by any chance? I mean, somebody recording it, will it come up on YouTube somewhere? So we're hoping on the day, but it will be at Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, we will have media and it will be on our social media platforms. And even the chefs of themselves, just to name a few, we've got Wandela Bombasso, who's got less creatives. Um, he's actually just come back from France. He's a South African, young African chef. He was, did wonders there. He was also part of helping Alan Dikas get his third Michelin star within his restaurant. He's brought his talent back to South Africa. The next one is Andela Sumdaka. Andela used to cook for the president, Madiba. And part of his thing as well is also to promote the foods that he used to feed Madiba as well. So it's going back a little bit into his history, into his culture, which he's very, very, very proud about. So it's, food is more than just about eating, about enjoying the flavors. It's actually about the story. And I think for me, that's always been the thing. I've, I sit there and I wonder, where did this come from? I've gone on a mission to find out where various things yes. came from over the years. And how do we get people interested and more kind of wanting to go and find what there is in their area that they can go out and get. I mean, for instance, if I'm wandering around in the parks in Johannesburg, what can I go and forage for apart from Maroch in the way of amaranth, which will be sort of on the side of the rivers, the sprates, although those sprates are fairly polluted, so I wouldn't be wanting to really eat that coming off the side of the road, you know. So you've touched base on something there. Um, within our urban spaces, unfortunately, they are becoming polluted because of the lack of infrastructure development. About 10, 15 years ago, it would have been fine to go and forage within your communities, but we've got to be mindful of where we pick our foods. A lot of these foods that we are fine growing around that are edible is what we call bioaccumulators. So everything bad around them, they accumulated to create and become bioregenerators. And if you look along our coastlines at the moment, there's certain ingredients like, for instance, June spinach. Yes, it's a lovely edible, provided you pick it from a clean, pure ecosystem outside of urban spaces. And eventually, even Bruxlai, which grows up in the Northern Cape, which they've found that it absorbs all the heavy metals from the mines. Mm. So even the indigenous community, I said to him, but guys, in the Cape, they're promoting this as an edible. Why don't you guys eat it anymore? They said to me, yeah. These things at the moment, they're high in metals because they're pulling all the dirt from the air. So we let them to rather grow, to regenerate, to take all those toxins out. So we've got to be very mindful of where we pick and how we pick. Um, also, the wild foods picking around as well contain high amounts of oxalic acids. So if we don't eat them in good balance as well, we actually do detrimental damage to our body as opposed to the health properties. But they are very healthy provided they're consumed in the right quantities. Just to give you an idea, like obviously when the Dutch arrived onto the shores of the Cape, the, the Oxalis piscapra, your, your searings, your wood sorrel, those were used mm. to help them fight scurvy because of the high vitamin C, but also the buchos. But also because they also thought that they knew everything about all these foods that were growing there, they used to go and pick an, a wild almond that grows in Table Mountain. And a lot of the people started dying because they didn't want to listen to the local people. 
And the local people used to purge this into water for three days to pull out all the toxins, and they used to roast the nuts and eat it. And they could never understand why are these guys eating these almonds, but our people are dying from it. So the biggest lesson I can always say to somebody, talk to the elders, talk to the communities, talk to the people that these ingredients come from. And that is the best lessons that we have to learn. You know, I got taught something very, very, very important, and I'm actually writing about it in my next article in the Great Eat magazine. It's about a, a little boy by the name of William. His father is a direct descendant of the Nama people, and his father still lives along the Orange River and in Namibia. And one day we were painting a wall at the Zucker Stadium as well um, to inspire them because we wanted to paint this beautiful cockerboom so they can start understanding their family and family lineage, but in, embrace that. Next minute, he went down and started picking these flowers off the stony bush of a plant called Coden Rayeni. It's a desert honey bush. And he started sucking these flowers. And he says, Minya Komiso. And I went there, picked the flower, sucked it. It was probably the most delicious nectar I've ever tasted in my life. But we don't know these things. So this is something that was passed on from generation to generation to generation. And eventually, all the kids were picking the flowers. So... These are the lessons that we have to listen to very, very carefully to these people, but also give them respect from that. The problem that we have now is getting that knowledge out of these old indigenous people is that they've been abused over time. So a lot of researchers that went and worked within these communities have taken this indigenous knowledge, but have not given them recognition to it. There's a reason that I stopped doing foraging tours, because it's not my story to tell. It's my responsibility to engage them with those communities to start doing those tours themselves so they can tell their stories themselves. I love that. That's absolutely <laughs> wonderful. Really. Um, okay, so if people want to find out more about how to feed themselves with the stuff that they should be, <laughs> firstly, your books, where can they get them from? I mean, are there recipes in the books as well? Sorry, I haven't had a, a look through them. I mean, I've just been very interested in the whole story of the different foods that you use. So there's obviously information in the books about the foods, where they come from, the stories behind them, and how to cook them. Okay, where do they get the books? So the books can be purchased online through my website. It's uh, The Wild Food Revolution. The website is www.thewfr.com. That also is a free, a free platform I created uh, post-COVID as well because I see a lot of people being hungry and I wanted them to inspire them to show them that there's actually food around you. Nobody should be going to bed hungry. And on there, there's a good collection of ingredients within currently now in the autumn. We're transitioning now into winter. And I change that every single season so that people can start understanding what foods are within that season. I also write for a beautiful magazine. It's called Grow to Eat. And I do beautiful articles with inside them where I promote a different ingredient from a different ecosystem from a different biome. And this one in particular, we're talking about the wild asparagus. And in South Africa, we have an abundance of wild asparagus that grows around us. And we just got to know which species to pick. So the article gives a very, very in-depth outline of what we can pick, what species we can pick and what we can't pick, but how to pick them properly. And this is a very, very important thing, especially within foraging as well. And sometimes I grind my teeth when I see people that are supposed to be knowledgeable about this, not teaching the most important thing is how do we pick it properly. So what I've got here, this is a garlic buckle. This plant within itself, if we pick it correctly, it grows prolifically. Now this used to be one stem, and I'll grow this in my garden. I picked it over there, but I picked it in a very special pot, which is called an internodal site. Now, mm -hmm. if you look within the leaf structures as well, you'll see your different internodal sites. If you pick above that internodal site, you're going to get two new shoots. 
You pick those two new shoots, you're going to get four new shoots. And what that does, it basically grows that plant to be more bushier, but able to give you more plant matter that you can able to hear, to, to hear from. This lesson I learned from a very special baboon that's here in the Southern Cape. It's called the Chakma baboon. And they are the canopy managers. So when you always see them, you always see them picking and foraging and all of that on the tips. But the way that they pick it is very special because they're always selective when they pick and they pick it about the internodal site. And if you're ever in the area, you need to have a look at it and take a closer look. And from me watching them doing that, started teaching me more about nature. How do we do things better? How are these beautiful canopies always so beautifully like that and prolific mm. in fruit where these animals are? So even these animals as well, they are threatened by biodiversity loss because of urban development. And because people are moving into their food spaces as well, their food sources is now becoming diminished. Now the problem lies is now they're getting involved in coming into people's private properties and people are shooting these animals, but also chase them away. But they have more right to be there than us. But in our urban environments, we've got to understand things better, right? If we're going to take something out of a certain space, we need to plant it surrounding that area to create a cash crop or a cover crop so that they still have the access to the food that they need. The special mm. thing about those baboons, which I also learned, is that they're one of the only species of baboons within Southern Africa that are also reliant on coastal aquatic edibles. So they physically go out and go pick mussels and eat mussels, um, shellfish, all of those kind of things. And it's beautiful lessons that you get to learn from both nature, but also from the indigenous communities that surround us. And they never take more than they need. That's the thing. Never. Don't don't pick more than you actually need. And and that's the first thing. Don't eat as more than you need to eat either, which is <laughs> would go a long way. But you're quite right. I mean, I sit there and I think about South Africa being the one that eats the most maize, and we have most of the obesity problems in Africa, which is quite scary. So those books available on www.thewfr.co.za. Wild Food Revolution. That's Don't it. miss it. If you want to find out more and you want to be a little bit more caring and kind to the environment, these are the books to have. Gregory, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, this has been absolutely fantastic. I mean, it's so nice to find people who have got like minds in different fields, uh, and especially when it comes to the chefs around the world who are changing everybody's minds with all the green Michelin stars that are being given out as well for sustainable restaurants around the world. And uh, yes, don't forget um, that you can be a much better person. You don't have to go after the almighty dollar. I think you should be putting everything back into the environment. Take that little bit of money, put it back, go and help somebody who's less fortunate than you are. Gregory, best of luck. Let us know when your next book is coming out. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Okay. And for the rest of you, do join us again in the reading room and uh, let us know what kind of books you've been reading. We'd love to hear from you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.